0: People love to obsess about, you know, oddsmakers opening numbers. And granted, I'm saying this as somebody who has a history of opening numbers and perhaps opened a a terrible, terrible number on a WNBA All Star game one time. But in the end, like it, it's just the opener is not that important. Like they're open for lower limits. You you get bet into. You a good bookmaker knows how to move the number aggressively. Just like a good bookmaker knows how to move the number aggressively on an NFL draft prop. And you get to the number, and and then you kick up the limits when the market settles, and you take bets.
1: Welcome to Props and Hops, a podcast pursuing the best in betting and beer. I'm your host, Matt Landis, and this week's guest definitely bringing us the best in betting from both sides of the counter, and that's because I'm honored to have Matt Metcalf on board. Matt is the Circa Sportsbook director and has a past as a pro better. at present leading arguably the world's greatest sportsbook, and I don't mean that as hyperbole. Matt, welcome to Props and Hops.
0: Thanks for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Pleasure to have you on board. And I know a lot of people are really digging what you and the circuit team are up to these days. Some people probably know a decent bit about your background, but I always try to think of somebody who might be unacquainted or in need of a refresher, um, starting off with the most original question in all of podcasting. Could you kick this off with a bit of an elevator pitch on your background?
0: Yeah, I grew up in uh, South Florida, Fort Lauderdale to be specific, Um, went to school at University of Florida. Um, found sports betting probably sometime around the age of 11 or 12 and was just kind of completely consumed by it. Um, definitely learned the hard way that sports betting was not easy as a, as a youth and had grander visions of moving to Las Vegas and kind of being a bookmaker and being on the, the winning side of the, of the equation in terms of being behind the counter. So, uh, when I graduated from college, I think it was about 22, I packed up my bags, drove across the country and, uh, ended up on Jay Cornegay's, uh, or at jay cornegay's desk asking him for a job and this is when he was at the imperial palace i was lucky enough to get a job as a ticket writer wrote tickets there for probably about six months uh got promoted to supervisor and then we actually moved over to the super book which was then the hilton now the westgate and so worked there for about uh i think about seven years booking games and struck out as a professional veteran in 2010 took the circuit job in 2018 and here i am today so
1: Nice. And if I did my homework correctly, one thing I took away from a conversation you had with Spanky on the Be Better Betters podcast, which I can't recommend highly enough. You were on there for an interview, May of 2020. I believe you grew up as a University of Florida fan in the heyday of the Miami FSU rivalry. That's a bit of a contrarian stance to take. I wonder if something like that, that far in your background might have any connection in your mind these days when it comes to your approach in betting and bookmaking.
0: Yeah that's really interesting and I and I obviously told the story as as you heard probably on Spanky's podcast but in my middle school of however many kids there was 1000 1500 kids I I think it was me and one other person who were Florida fans one Notre Dame fan and then the rest was either Miami or uh, Florida State so yeah I I actually remember wearing my my Florida gear with pride kind of just because we were kind of the underdog so I think naturally early I was probably looking as you're saying for like a contrarian point of view and I took pride in kind of representing the uh the the underrepresented team. Um, I don't root for a lot of people in my life, but Steve Spurrier is definitely one of them. It's one of the few pictures I have in this room behind me, my, behind my shoulder right there. Um, yeah, one of my heroes. And I'm not a fan of probably anything, any other sports team that I can think of besides the Gators. Um, but even that, you know, with betting over all the years kind of gets dampened a little, and you have to kind of learn to set that to the side when you're when you're betting, obviously. And one
1: other item that you touched on, I wanted to unpack just a little bit. I think the biggest bet you've probably ever made would be on yourself when you talk about driving from Florida to Vegas without any guarantee of a job at the time. I think of the saying, put your ass where your heart wants to be. You certainly embodied that with your journey across the country. And I'm wondering how you might have continued to apply that mindset since getting that first job
0: at Imperial Palace. Yeah, I think I've, I've tried to always force myself to kind of take the chance that I felt like was a calculated risk. Um, you know, I think we all have kind of that inner voice that kind of guides us and tells us, you know, what is, what is the direction we should be heading, even if it doesn't always feel like it's the the highest chance, but we know it's kind of, you know, being true to ourselves and kind of doing, putting us in the position to to ultimately kind of experience the the best success we're capable of. And so I might be, making it sound overly dramatic being that all I did was kind of get in the car and drive to Vegas. And if I didn't succeed, I could have gone home, but you know, I've, I've tried to push myself throughout my career, whether it's quitting, quitting the Superbook and trying to become a professional sports better or heading back and kind of, you know, working on the side of the counter when I hadn't done it in 10 years. Um, Yeah. I'm always trying to kind of push myself to take the next step.
1: Love it. Yeah. I think there's so much to be said, as simple as it might sound for simply showing up and taking a risk and being present. And it sounds like you've again, embodied that quite well over the years, One more question I want to dig into when it comes to your background, it's rare to uh, at least hear publicly about somebody who has experience as a pro better and is operating at the level that you are on the other side of the counter these days. Have you found there to be any primary crossover skills when it comes to both the betting and bookmaking sides of the equation?
0: Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I think I reference a lot of the time that the customer experience is something that I feel like I'm acutely aware of in terms of what professional bettors and all bettors experience when they walk into a sports book. And I think that's helped me um, in our team at Circa kind of design, you know, how we want players and customers to be treated, how we want them to interact with the app. Um, you know, the the drive of trying to put limits on every single bet on our app is definitely something that's come from my own frustrations as a better, you know, going into sports books and not really understanding what the limit was and not knowing how much I can get down. So yeah, it's definitely helped me. I think when I was at the Superbook in the 2000s, I guess from 2004 to 2010, I think I had an appreciation for customer service and I was providing excellent customer service, but I didn't really understand, you know, why I just felt like it was the right thing to do. I think as I quit and got more betting experience under me, I understood, okay, no, like this is what you were so, you were so frustrated with other books because of these reasons. And now you're encountering the same stuff. This is what you were trying to not do at the super book. So next time you have a chance, you know, I'm really going to hone in on you know, applying all these things much more methodically than I than I was the first time around because I understood more what I was trying to do. I don't know, kind of a convoluted answer, but yeah. No, it makes sense thinking
1: back to a recent example that I was fortunate to be a part of. I'd like to weave Bet Bash into the conversation a little bit because with BetBash too, I know from speaking with Spanky that you were heavily involved in planning everything and bringing it to life. What was that experience like on your end?
0: It was just incredible. Um, you know, just as somebody who I... I felt like I was able to attend the conference as a, as a guest to some degree. I participated in the, uh, the, uh, the speed networking event. Um, you know, I went to as many of the parties as I could, but you know, I just, it really felt like uh, a once in a lifetime chance for professional betters to just meet and interact and kind of, you know, break down the walls of the internet that have kind of kept a lot of us probably from knowing each other or at odds with each other. Um, it was just such a amazing experience. And I, I, had visions of it i think on the way in and and hoping it would be that amazing and it surpassed every single one of them and you know i use the speed networking event as a as an example because um i was hesitant to one endorse it when spanky brought it up i I, it felt very complicated to me and i'm somebody who like wants to think through every logistical situation and okay what's what's our points of failure if this is more than a 50 percent chance of failure we shouldn't do it it's too risky and so i kind of tried to talk spanky out of it and he was like no i know this is the key to like a great weekend. This is a great starting off thing, and so I trusted them. And then the second part was, I'm not a very outgoing person naturally, and I I kind of told myself, you know what, like let's just let's get in this thing and let's network and let's see what it's about. Um, I was very nervous to participate. Um, you know, I did all the meetings, and and it, it just blew my mind. Like I, I I never would have met that many people over the course of the weekend, honestly you know, more than a handshake if I had to participated in that. And it just made me feel a little more at ease and more likely to start conversations. And so I, I really appreciate that event specifically. And, you know, my memories of the whole weekend are just are just so great. I can't wait to participate in the next one.
1: Yeah, you and me both and plenty of other people. It was pretty impressive to see the outpouring of support for the event after the fact. I think everybody who I saw there seemed to be enjoying it just as much as I was. But to see people really document that afterward, I think there's a huge appetite for Bet Bash 3 whenever that's coming up. Is there anything at this stage uh, that you might be able to share about where that is, you know, in the works? I would imagine that with how successful BetBash 2 was, probably looking at something fairly similar, at least in terms of Spanky partnering with you and Derek Stevens in the team. Um, so is there any outlook that you have for the future of BetBash and your possible involvement in it?
0: Yeah, I think the the hope is that it'll be at Circa for a long time to come here. Um, you know, we're building or completing our convention space at Circa, uh, I think, late this year. And so hopefully we'll have that up and going uh, to accommodate some more guests for next year, because I know we sold out the event pretty quick. And, you know, all all credit to Spanky on how quickly sold the event, but we could definitely get some more people in the door and make this an even bigger event next year. So I think just the, the change of venue for, you know, the speed networking type events and then the uh, the lectures and stuff like that will be. Will be, uh, will be a great addition, and, and just having everything under one roof at Circle will be pretty cool. So,
1: Definitely. Well, I know plenty of us are going to be looking forward to that, but in the meantime, there's plenty we can dig into in the sports betting world. One of the first big events after Bet Bash wrapped with the NCAA championship game would be the NFL Draft, and I'd love to dig into your thoughts on the market and kind of how you and the Circuit team approached booking the draft this year relative to last year.
0: Yeah, it was a much different process. I think last year we were we were coming to a point where I, I'm I all these years run together a little with pandemic, but I, I think we were trying to kind of make a statement and put things put more stuff on the board. So we said, all right, let's be the market leaders. Let's get these bets up quick. Let's take high limits. Um, I think going into this year, just being that the event was in Vegas, also I I just didn't I didn't feel as comfortable with it. I, I didn't really understand in terms of you know, what type of information be floating around Vegas casinos in terms of executives and people having the ability to come in and bet, you know, amounts. And, and the one thing is when we hang something on the board at Circa, I want to be able to take a big bet to it. And so the draft kind of frustrated me because I was, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, all right, like at best, we can take two dimes in these things realistically, because we don't want to just, you know, I, I set the number coming into last year's draft. Let's not lose more than 100,000. And I think we lost more than hundred thousand last year. And so I was a little disappointed in that. And I'm like, all right, I just, I don't think we're going to win no matter what we do in this. Um, And we can't take big limits to it. I got to a point where I was like, I don't even want to book the draft. I'm like, let's just not do it. I'm like, you know, it's, we're devoting all this time to it. We're not even going to take big limits on it. You know, it's just, it's just a waste. And then Jeff Benson to his credit said, you know, what would people expect of circa, you know, um, if they're coming to Circa, this is the best, best sports book in the world. Quotes. Some people might not agree, but um, you know they would expect us to have draft props on the board. And I've always asked everybody on my team to put themselves in the customer's shoes and say what would they expect to Circa. And so Jeff played it back at me, and I said, "You're right." Um, you know, while we didn't take huge limits, I said, "Let's stick with the over/under props." You know, the draft positions—they're easier to control. Um, we'll put up 32 of them, and take a dime a piece. And so it kind of bothers me because I felt like we were playing it in the middle and playing it a little safe. And, and my whole thing is like, you know, I, I hate just being in the middle. I'd rather do nothing or, you know, lead the world in it. So it's kind of, I don't know, it frustrated me the, the whole draft and how we kind of played it, but in the end it was, it was fine. You know, it was a, it was a marginal result either way. And, um, you know, I'm happy we could create a market for some people because it does go in line with what we do. You know, we put up the Tiger Woods prop. I think will he play in the master's um a couple weeks before and that was a pure information market and so um yeah I felt a little hypocritical in my stance and so I gave in and did it but I'm still like bothered by it I don't know if you can tell I'm I'm really like conflicted about if we kind of like left too much on the table like should we done a lot more and I'm sure people say we should have but yeah I'm not sure so next next year hopefully we'll either (laughs) we'll either do nothing or we'll do a lot better job and I have a feeling we'll probably do a lot more next year is my thought so
1: Music to my ears, and I'm with you in terms of feeling mixed about it. I think that's a common sentiment on both sides of the counter here. I was talking to the whale capper, Drew Dinsick, shortly before the draft, and we were wondering to ourselves if any books that were hesitant with this year's market might be leaving a little bit of money on the table. Obviously, if you're exposing yourself too much in an information market with some sharps, you have to be really careful. You know that probably as well as anybody. And at the same time, I feel like 99% of bettors in general, circa caters to a sharper crowd, but most bettors aren't so sharp. I have a lot of friends, you know, in the Vegas area and in regulated markets that they just want to bet because it's Friday night. Maybe they're having some beers. They're excited for the weekend and they want some action. And when it comes to something like the draft for a while, they didn't have those options. Right. And I'm wondering from your position, again, knowing that circa doesn't cater to the same crowd as every book, but do you think that there might have been more opportunity and maybe this informs the approach moving forward, knowing that, yes, when information gets out, some people will have it first and they'll hit you hard for it. But a lot of bettors who just want some action, you know, might benefit you in a way by having more options earlier on in the process.
0: Yeah, I mean, my, my whole thing with the draft is I think just we don't have the level of play that we have for the draft is, is so sharp. You know, we just don't write any public money on it. And that's not a good excuse to not hang more stuff because, you know, we're obviously angling long-term for more public money, but it does factor in a little to our decision today. Um, I'm, I'm kind of the, of the thought that a lot of this information and a lot of these rumors are, are very overrated. And, you know, I, I've heard so many rumors over my 20 years in, in various markets and various things that it's just like long-term. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't really listen to inside information unless I know it's something that I've gotten from a source that is reputable, but nine out of 10 times, it's just people chasing, you know, steam or smoke or or trying to feel like they have that inside information that they really don't. So, you know, that kind of makes an argument against me that I should be booking more stuff and, and, you know, throwing higher limits up on the board. Um, But it it is a market that we know we're not going to beat the wise guys on and they're extremely proficient at it. So it's kind of like, how much are we okay with, you know, giving back to the wise guys? And the thing is, our team is so competitive. Our, our risk team, whether it's, you know, Chris Bennett, um, you know, Jeff Davis, they they can't just throw something up on the board and kind of let let the chips fly, you know, let the chips go where they, they may, where they may. They they get consumed by it and they want to win and they're going to dedicate, you know, every hour trying to win in the NFL draft. And so, you know, our team is is and again, this is not making excuses. This is just the realities of it. Our, our team is comprised of a very select group of individuals who know how to book at a high level and we have to book the major sports we have to keep booking you know nba nhl all the stuff that's going on on a regular basis um baseball um so it's kind of like how much time do we want to eat up because they can't they don't know how to do something half-assed so that's kind of what the the boat we get stuck in so you know if they if we're going to take five dimes well maybe we could but they'd literally have to live in the book for you know four days and and not ever leave and so you know we're trying to be realistic with what we're doing so it's about finding that balance i guess which is hard to do sometimes
1: One thing you touched on was dealing with a market where a lot of it, especially in something like the draft, can be people chasing steam, whether there's validity behind it or not. That's a big part of the approach for a lot of bettors. And as I was exchanging some thoughts on the draft on Twitter during the lead up, building out my portfolio, looking to share information with others, somebody reached out with an interesting question that I feel intuitively myself and a lot of bettors might know the answer to, but you can probably articulate it really well. When we're looking at the draft and there's a lot of steam on something, how do you determine how far to move the big versus moving somebody's draft slot and possibly exposing yourself to a middle? I know a lot of books, not even for a player, but for wide receivers, over five and a half, you know, eventually some books went to six and a half and it lands on six. How do you evaluate just how far to move the big and where you're going to go ahead and move the actual slot for the draft market?
0: Well, I mean, this is where you get into it, where I, I really don't know how some of the the corporations that don't have super experienced traders can even begin to book the draft because anybody who can book the draft effectively is probably good enough to be professional sports better because you know like you said the wide receiver prop you know if if somebody bets over 22 and a half and there's no chance that teams 23 24 25 26 are taking a wide receiver those are all dead numbers so you know what good is a 22 and a half 10 over 10 cent move going to do over over 20 over 30 it's hardly doing anything and what good does it do to move it two positions to 24 and a half and go over 20 because you're essentially not even moving anything with the juice. So, you know, you have to know what you have to be all consumed by the draft and know, you know, the tendency of these teams, what their needs are, what the dead numbers are like there's nobody who's an average bookmaker who can just walk in and book the draft. You really have to be, you know, living and breathing the draft to have any chance booking it. And that's, again, I'll just give testament to Chris Bennett and then Jeff Benson who really helped out Chris this year. Um, I have no idea how they were, they were able to somehow win some small amount of money. And I mean, to me, it's just incredible. Like I, I would have put them like, I don't know, like at least like a $4 dog to like win money on that. And it just speaks to their competence. And, you know, I take no credit for that. Cause I, I don't care about the NFL draft at all. You couldn't pay me money to to sit there and research that, um, you know, unless I was out on my own betting, I guess, but yeah, from a bookmaker standpoint, I, I want no piece of that. So.
1: There's a good idea on a prop for next year, uh, over under on a possible hold percentage for Circa. Of course, the Gaming Commission would probably frown upon something like that. <laughs> and something else the Gaming Commission is involved in now is cutting things off in Nevada the day before the draft. So people showing up on draft day, probably a lot of people going to counter wanting to bet and being told that that's not an option to them. Was there any impact on your end? I know you guys cater to a sharper crowd, so people probably knew the rules a little bit better. But did you have people who were asking to bet and you just had to give them the bad news that it was too late because of reasons beyond your control. And with a dynamic like that, do you think it might change at any point in the foreseeable future?
0: Yeah, I mean, we had little complaints, mostly because, excuse me, mostly because we cater to, like you said, a more sophisticated crowd who knows the rules. But um, I imagine that scenario played out all of the strip on, uh, what is that, Wednesday night, the night before. Um, I I think Nevada will adjust. I think if they see enough feedback from casinos and from betters that say, you know, why are we cutting this off at this arbitrary time? Um, You know, can't we just push it a little further? I I think they'll come around to it, but you know, it's, I, I don't think there was a huge number of complaints and maybe that's just people accepting that this is what Nevada's chosen to do, but we didn't hear a lot of negative blowback from it. So it makes it easier for us, obviously.
1: Absolutely. All right. Well, something we can keep an eye on moving forward. I appreciate all your insight on the NFL draft. And I'd also like to touch on a noteworthy story that came up shortly after Bet Bash pertaining to the NBA playoffs. I'll rewind a few weeks, but I think that your thought on this could be applicable to a lot of listeners moving forward. And that's going back to the Nets Celtics opening series odds. Um, for context, at Bet Bash, you were on the ethics and sports betting panel, and the moderator mm-hmm. of that panel, David Purdom of ESPN, wrote an article on how the opening series odds for Brooklyn and Boston were essentially two hours of free money. And without asking you to speak too much to a different book, the reason there was free money on the table, so to speak, is because Caesars opened Brooklyn minus 135, Boston taking back plus 115 going the other way. And the consensus price settled in at Boston minus 145. So there's a big gap there when one team's a decided favorite everywhere and you can get plus money on them at a pretty big book. So with that arbitrage opportunity, a lot of people could have guaranteed a profit or just unload money on that bad plus number on the Celtics. Um, Clearly seeing how that played out, just going heavy on the Celtics there, paid handsomely for those who chose to do so. And I'm curious from your standpoint, when we see, you know, a series price, is it not mainly a product of the game one spread and other known information? I'm just struggling to understand with a major book and a major market like NBA playoff series, with such a major discrepancy in lines like that, I mean, how does something like that even
0: happen in 2022? Yeah, I mean, the only way that could happen where somebody posts a line that far off is just not understanding the market and not being able to make a spread. Because like you said, it's just plugging money lines into, you know, a five-game series calculator and seeing what it is or or figuring it by hand however you do it. Um, I, I I I don't want to discourage the book that opened that because in my mind, I wish there was more stuff like that where you know, price discovery kind of unfolded naturally. And granted, as you said, you know, price discovery probably isn't going to be an extremely complicated process in, in the playoffs where everybody's kind of slotted into their power rating and everybody knows the numbers. But I, I like that that happened. And, and you know, if they think the spread should have been this and they plug that in and it kicks out minus 130 on, on New Jersey or excuse me, on Brooklyn. Um, great. Hang the number, have a limit, five dimes, take the bet. Um, if somebody else you know, plugs in their power ratings and gets a different series price, throw it up and the market goes to the right price. I mean, that's how it should work. I would love to look up and see, you know, six different books, all post different openers and kind of it all kind of the market dictates. And that's how sports betting in my mind would be a healthier, you know, industry. Um, But yeah, it, it, it's surprising to me that they missed um, on a number that bad. Um, But then again, I guess, you know, towards the end of the year, and I, again, I don't follow NBA that close, but I, I guess there was some, thought that that brooklyn might have been playing to a higher number once they entered the playoffs and you know once once they got in there they'd turn it on and and be a better team and so maybe they were thinking that i mean but again i I just don't think the opener is that important of a number and people love to obsess about you know odds makers opening numbers and granted i'm saying this as somebody who has a history of opening numbers and perhaps opened a a terrible terrible number on a WNBA all-star game one time but in the end like it's just the opener is not that important. Like they're open for lower limits. You, you get bet into you a good bookmaker knows how to move the number aggressively, just like a good bookmaker knows how to move the number aggressively on an NFL draft prop and you get to the number and, and then you pick up the limits when the market settles and you take bets. That's how it's supposed to work. So
1: that reminds me of a conversation I had not too long ago with the legendary Chris Andrews. He mentioned his opinion as being worth one bet. So Mm -hmm. I hear you on the value of price discovery And at the same time, just curious when we had, you know, such a discrepant opener at one of the major players, did that end up having any impact on circus handle for that series or any other aspects of the NBA playoffs?
0: I didn't know the timing of when we went up. So we might've gone up later, but yes, it would have had an impact. Um, had we gone up when they were, you know, uh, hanging the other side, favored, obviously. I mean, we, we take on all, all every better in the world. So, um, the arbitrage guys are going to hit us quick and fast and we post the limits. So we're always going to be, you know, one of the first stops. So it definitely would have had an increase on handle, but I I can't speak to the timetable of kind of when we opened uh, um, compared to like where their price was. So I'm not really sure.
1: Fair enough. Well, one thing you mentioned there was taking on any better in the world. And I'd like to dig in a bit on circus philosophy to that end. Uh, First off, how would you describe your process of identifying and working with sharp betters that aren't able to get down too much beyond circa?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it comes down a couple of ways. A lot of times a lot of bettors approach us and come to the counter and, and introduce themselves and we'll talk to them. And, you know, I'll try to be as straightforward as I can and saying, you know, what sports, what sports are you looking to bet? I want to understand the wagering patterns. Do you play closer, you know, game? Do you play games the day of? Do you play openers? Like, what, when are you betting? What effect do you have on the market? Um, because I, I really am trying to strategize with them how I can get them down the most money which it doesn't always work out. Sometimes, you know, the style of play doesn't behoove me to accept, you know, 3X the, 3X the limit. You know, if they're playing college football totals openers, you know, I, I'm probably going to be, you know, stuck giving them the, the standard limit. Um, but from time to time, and I was having this conversation with, with someone, I think, yesterday, where I said, you know, I'll, I'll be in the risk room and, and a lot of times I'll, I'll slot players kind of where I think they belong or, or what limits I think they should get. And I'll see a player, Who, you know, let's for example, could be winning at a 7%, 8% clip. Um, They make their bets, limit bets. The market doesn't move. There's no effect really on them, on their, on to the market. That's an opportunity for me to say, okay, you know, this is a good player. We're getting information from him. You know, is he trying to get down more? Can I give him double the limit? You know, and and I'll look to proactively do that. I I really do believe that if I'm able to give you more money, you know, I'd like to do that no matter your skill level. Um, But sometimes just the way the world is set up. With a lot of other books not taking heavy action, you know, it's hard for me to, to give out a 5x bet um, of our limit. And, you know, you lay four and then the whole market goes to five. And it's like, I can't really earn off that bet. So it's, you know, I'll, 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 I'll work with it when I can. If that's, a, if that's a one set of every 10 bets occurrence, you know, I'll, I'll let it go. But if it's every bet, you just kind of handcuffing us. And the thing I say to everybody, which has been true though so far is, you know, every year we go along, we we do raise our limits as our handle grows. And so I, I tell them that our standard limit is, is what I believe always to be fair. So um, if you're not getting down what you need today, like be patient with us, please, we ask, like, we're trying to get there. And I think the customers who have been with us a long time um, have seen that that's true, that we do raise our limits and we do from year to year try to take more. So I, I think we're honest in that approach.
1: A lot of nuance to that answer, and as you touch on that, I think that a lot of people who might be fairly new to betting or up-and-coming as bettors themselves might think of somebody in your position as a sportsbook director as, you know, maybe one vision of how the job works, but you're doing kind of like you touched on. Sometimes it has to do more with odds-making, other times a lot more with bookmaking. There's probably a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram if we compare odds-making and bookmaking, but how would you compare and contrast those two components as far as them being
0: core principles of your role? Um, yeah, I think it's a little bit jack of all trades, and like sometimes you know I, I haven't booked since college basketball season. Um, I don't book uh, baseball, but whereas like last year I booked, I booked NBA and NBA futures like all year, and this year I, I like couldn't even tell you like all all the members of the playoffs, uh the playoffs. Like I just when I'm not booking something, I just don't really follow it. Um, but I I pride us on like opening opening numbers. I try to get as many of our guys to do that. Um, We're so busy bookmaking that it's hard to really do it. And we probably kind of got away from it a little, we still do it in college football. We did it last year for college basketball. Um, But yeah, we're, we're just kind of doing it when we can. I think long-term my vision is to open as many markets as we can first in the world. Like, I think that would be a a core component of what we do. But right now I think the bookmaking end of it is, is more important. I think us getting down um, or helping people get down more money and, and taking big bets is, is a more valuable use of our time for our customers than opening the first number. And so I prioritize that. But in terms of my personal role, um, yeah, it just changes. And like, you know, sometimes, sometimes I'll, you know, I'll kind of fall in where I'm doing more odds making or trying to do more odds making. And sometimes I want to book and sometimes I don't feel like booking. And, you know, I concentrate more on expansion. It's just kind of like, our, our team is so good. And as we've gone along, um, you know, three years into opening the doors here, um, I have the ability to do that because, you know, Chris Bennett, Jeff Davis, Jeff Benson, Glenn Herzog, you know, these guys are just so talented and they've allowed me the freedom to kind of concentrate on other things and handle, you know, they just, they just handle the the, the booking end of it so well on the odds making part.
1: One of my thoughts there, as you explained that is, it seems like quite the art and science on your end as well. A lot of bettors know that this can be an art and a science, but that can apply equally to the other side of the counter also. And you talked about, wanting to open up as many markets first in the world at some point in the future uh, as something that you and your team are working toward. I know that generally, uh, check me if I'm wrong on this, but I feel like Circa to this point has, uh, I think properly so, emphasized quality over quantity when it comes to the number of markets offered and how expansive the menu is. And people you know, on the other side of the counter are probably always gonna want more markets, a bigger attack surface. As you touch on wanting to open things first in the world in the future, is there a chance that also, just in general, we could see Circa start to offer more and more markets over time? Uh, if so, is there anything that people might be interested in keeping an eye out for in the not too distant future?
0: Yeah, that's the goal, and I think a lot of our work with uh, Deck Prism in Colorado is probably a little more of a preview of kind of what we hope to come. We, op- we offer a lot more, uh, menu- or a lot more offerings uh, in Colorado because of Deck Prism's assistance, and you know, a lot of their stuff is automated, and they run their own models, and they're able to kind of keep up with that stuff in a way that we couldn't manually. And again, you know, I don't I don't want to ever sound like I'm making excuses, but, you know, we, we currently in Nevada trade mostly manual and do all our markets by hand. And so it's a really antiquated approach that we're taking, but it allows us to kind of, you know, have our niche in the market, which is taking big bets and, you know, reacting in a way that allows us to still make what I perceive to be good money off them. Um, I'm not going to spread us too thin. I'm not going to like compromise the brand in terms of, you know, opening up a hundred different props on a game where we can only take $300 on them or $200 on them. It's not worth it to me. Um, you know, to me, it's more of kind of a marathon of how do we get to the point where we can be offering, you know, 50 hundred props on every game and be taking dimes or taking nickels. So that's kind of what we're building towards. Um, I think we're, we're probably, we're probably still a, a couple few years away from, from getting there, but I, I think we're on the right path. And again, a lot of our work with Prism Prism Colorado, I think is a preview of what we hope to kind of kind of be in terms of our menu offering. And I think we can get there through, through all the sports, but you know, right now I think we do serve a valuable place in the market in terms of offering fair limits and taking on the major sports and, and really giving people a place to get down on the games, you know, when they might struggle to get down, you know, all in one stop, um, on on big events, and I'm talking like you know people struggle on NBA games, NHL games, um, just to get down five dimes. So you know to to be able to log on to the Circa app and get down ten dimes on a game without any chance of a bet being denied, or, or it, that's that's valuable to a lot of people. So I think we're I think we're valuable to a large contingent of the sports betting population.
1: I think a lot of what you're doing and will be doing in the future, based on that answer, is truly industry leading, and will have ramifications for other books across the marketplace. And to that end, if we zoom out a bit and think about the industry overall, what would you say at this stage you would be most optimistic about and on the flip side of the coin, most concerned about thinking about the future of the regulated sports betting industry
0: I think i'm I'm most optimistic and this might be naive, but I, I am optimistic that the bigger operators will at some point understand what they're missing out on by by not just writing bets and and, you know, at some point, volume takes over. And no matter how many sharp customers you have, you can afford to take sharp wagers or wagers from educated players. And it will lead to more money because, you know, it's just, at some point you can't deny volume. The, the $50,000 NFL bet, you know, when you're writing, when you're writing a, a billion dollars on a game is, is so inconsequential, you know, but at this point, we've had operators limiting NFL games to, $300 three hundred dollars and and writing just a, a fraction of what they could um but that said there's not a lot of variance with what they're doing i mean i understand why they're doing it it's it's creates a nice a nice easy digestible kind of p l sheet i guess and, and keeps investors happy and doesn't create a lot of ups and downs and you know it's a bumpy road to get i think where, where i'm trying to get where we're trying to get and it, it there are times when it's when it's ugly and i have to Explain to Derek that this is a marathon and not a sprint. And luckily, lucky for me, he understands that. Um, I think the thing that scares me about getting there is when you read stuff in terms of the proposed California legislation, where you know, hundred million dollars for market access fee, ten operating states. They're really, they're really forcing out, you know, any hope of of the little guy coming in and kind of trying to offer something different or trying to compete on price. So it, it really it scares me that you know the operators might not have to ever kind of pay attention to what we're doing, um, even though I think it's in their best interest. I, I really do. I I believe that our model is the most profitable for any book, and especially a book that has you know the number of players that a DraftKings or a FanDuel has. But you know, it's not there. There are growing pains that come with with getting there, and the technology in the space right now is is definitely lacking. So I think that will improve, and you know, hopefully. Hopefully the the states continue not to try to price out the small or price out the little guy um, to keep healthy competition around. But overall I'm I'm optimistic as a whole. I, I just think that the US is is such a such a pro sports betting and such a such a you know a great a great place for sports betting to kind of thrive that I, I think that'll overcome all the kind of approaches that are being you know done right now that don't really have a positive impact on the industry. I'm intrigued that you mentioned California. I'm recording this
1: uh, from my home in Los Angeles right now. (laughs) And I'm not going to go as far as to ask you specifically for voting advice. But with what you outlined uh, for context, I know there was an article even in the Wall Street Journal today, as we record this Tuesday afternoon, May 3rd, about the proposed California legislation that has DraftKings and FanDuel, among others, teaming up. Um, My initial reaction is, okay, that sounds a hell of a lot better in the sense that it would allow online betting. Than some of the tribal push for, you know, brick and mortar locations that would really restrict things throughout this state. You know, part of me is torn. I know it's not perfect, but it's a lot better than current alternatives. Uh, Do I want to, you know, maybe vote no on that and just try to be patient, wait a little bit longer for more options. I mean, the offshores don't appear to be going anywhere. So if you're, you know, thinking this through from the, from the standpoint of a California better, let's say, um, you know, recreational plus is a term I like to borrow from others. You know, they're, they're invested in betting. They're, they're trying to get better and they're not pro, but they really enjoy it. Um, what do you think are some of the key considerations for that measure that, you know, DraftKings FanDuel, among others, are, are teaming up for right now to really try to push through it? We know now it's going to be on the ballot come November. I
0: mean, I, I would totally understand the, the recreational better and the kind of semi-professional better, you know, wanting sports betting today in a regulated environment in California. I could never fault them for that. I think a lot of my displeasure is more towards the um, the companies that I perceive don't have the industry's, you know, best kind of um, thoughts, I guess, in mind or, or aren't committed to the long term. What's it, What's in the best um uh, best, Lacking the word here, but in the best uh, nature of the industry. So that's kind of when I when I used to post a lot of stuff on Twitter, and I think people were always kind of asking me, you know, why, why are you sitting here posting this stuff? Why don't you just run your business and shut your mouth? And my argument was always that I'm okay with them running their business how they want to run their business, but at the point that it impacts how myself and other operators who have another idea about sports betting how it should be. It, you know, if it's impacting our ability to do business and open up in these states, then I have a problem with it because you know these are the companies that are writing the legislation, just like California, as to who gets to play. And so, yeah, I, I am going to speak out vocally against companies that are setting rules in place that don't allow you know everyone to play and don't create a healthy, fair in, environment in and industry. And so, um, again, I, I I can't fault anybody who votes for sports betting in California under the conditions proposed. But I don't think it's in the best, you know, long term view of the industry. And and maybe just because I'm somebody who is an industry insider of, of some of somewhat, um, maybe that's why I view it that way. But, you know, again, I, I would hold nothing against I wouldn't sit there and berate somebody or argue against them for voting what's in their best interest as a, you know, as a smaller stakes better or somebody who's never going to run into an issue of limiting. So I, I understand that.
1: Yeah, this is going to be an interesting one for a lot of people over the next few months. Uh, on one hand, something's better than nothing. And, and right. if it's something that lets you bet you know, online, that's better than having to go brick and mortar. At the same time, we know that it's probably far from perfect given the long-term considerations of the industry. Um, and if people have access to offshores, then how much is it really going to hurt them to have to possibly wait a little bit longer if we could get right. something better in the future? so. Um, I think that's above both of our pay grades to figure out all of this, but I think a <laughs> lot of mine, good food yeah. for thought. So I appreciate Congrats. the insight there. And I'd like to transition um, as we start to turn the corner to a lighter note. Um, I also heard you mention on your Be Better Betters interview with Spanky <laughs> that I think before you bet on sports, you bet on Mario Kart. And <laughs> playing Mario Kart, that just takes me back to some formative times growing up. I've got to ask: When you had money on the line, what was your go-to character,
0: and uh, what would you say is your favorite version of the Mario Kart game? I think I only played with Toad. I don't remember playing with anyone hmm. else. And we had like two different gambling versions. I think we would do we would do races where we would gamble on the time, like the time discrepancy. Um, and and my memory about this is is not great. But for instance, if you know if I finished in one minute and 30 seconds and you finished in one minute and 47 seconds, it was like a dollar for every extra second, you know? And a lot of times you could spend people out and knock them to the side of the road. This is all like, I want to say on super NES also, I think. Um, and then there was the, there was the battle version where you could like you were in the maze and you were battling um, and trying to knock the shells out of the other person. And, and that way I think was just a like a, an overall bet amount, like whoever won would win $20. And then it was like a price per shell. I, there was, as we went along, I mean, it was just, it was like, the biggest degenerate fest I, I can remember in terms of, you know, us just searching for every single like angle that we could price and put money on and, and directly tied to our performance. And yeah, we, we ended up between the like six or seven of us, just, we all, we all just were running debts back and forth. I, you know, we'd have a sheet of paper where it was like, okay, Matt owes, you know, so-and-so $87 and Matt owes so and uh, you know, so-and-so, $20. And then he owes him. Th- and, and the the big rule that, that came out of all of this was no transferring debts. Because there was always like one or two guys that were really bad about paying. And everybody would try to transfer their debts in line. So they're like, all right, he's never gonna pay me, but he owes me this. So okay, now instead of you owe me $20, you owe Jim $20. And so that became like a that, that rule came out quickly because the guys who didn't pay all of a sudden were stacking up these huge debts and yeah, it just kind of turned into chaos. And I think I think after Mario Kart we found um we kind of built our own like dice roulette game or something where we like figured out how to gamble on that and I don't know. We were we were yeah, I, I hope I hope uh if I have kids, I hope they don't take the similar path to uh to me in terms of growing up around that much betting. But yeah. In a
1: funny way, I feel like this could have been preparing you all along to be where you are today. I mean, from the no transferring of debt to even picking a character like Toad, this might be a bit of a reach here, but I think back to my preference being Bowser for that top end speed. And you had to be careful because if you ran into a wall or you needed some acceleration. Bowser was not your guy. He and Donkey right, were right. so slow out of the gates, but that top end speed, kind of like a Derrick Henry, if you will. And at the same time, if I'm on Rainbow Road, especially SNES, because they didn't right. have any walls at the time, give me Yoshi or Princess, because I want the smooth handles and just, you know, slow and steady wins the race. When you throw out Toad, I'm thinking, okay, this is Matt Metcalf going kind of middle of the road, you know, towing right. both sides of the line. <laughs> and it, it's almost like here you are in your career, both sides of the counter in terms of your experience in pro betting, and now what you're doing at Circa. So it feels like right. from Mario Kart to where you are today, it's it's all come full circle.
0: Your your Mario Kart character is definitely a metaphor for your like uh, your role in the sports betting space. That makes sense to me.
1: Yeah, I'd say uh, the Bowsers are probably all the guys who took out a big plus number on Trayvon Walker to go number one. And the Yoshis would be those of us who laid the vig on Trevor Penning to go round one, knowing it was a heavy price, but it was just a matter of time till it cashed. So all a matter of the risk tolerance. Well, Matt, while we're on a a fun topic, I also want to make sure to weave in the other pillar of this podcast, the hops. I understand that you are, let's call it a, a retired beer drinker, but rewinding a bit to your heyday, did you ever have a go-to beer, or even today, if it's not beer, any kind of
0: drink of choice when you want to unwind and take off the edge a bit? No, and I, I like, I don't know, I'm, I'm not like the drinker that I, that I used to be, and I, and I was never like a sophisticated like beer drinker. I think I drank, uh, I liked Harp, I drank, I drank Amstel Light, I drank like Heineken. I mean, I drank very vanilla beers. I, I do have a lot of good memories associated with with Heineken because my yearly tradition. For the Super Bowl and then for March Madness was, I would always buy um, a keg of Heineken for the Super Bowl and then for the first two days of March Madness. And so um, everybody knew for as long as I was in college that like you could show up at my house, watch the game, watch the games, always be well informed of the betting line and the props. There was always going to be printouts of the Imperial Palaces props there um, that I had downloaded off of AOL probably or something, um, and you could you know enjoy bottomless Heinekens for, for the entirety of, uh, whatever big sporting event was going on. So I think, I think I wrapped a lot of my, uh, younger years around that. So if I am going to drink a beer, it's probably a Heineken. I think most of it is probably just because it reminds me of of that time of my life. So.
1: I love it. I mean, thinking back to Heineken in my college days, and even now I will maintain there is a time and place for every beer. I mean, on a Mm -hmm. recent family vacation, as much as I will enjoy the fanciest craft beer, I enjoyed the hell out of crushing some Natty Lights with my father-in-law, Doug, who puts Natty Light on a pedestal. It's his favorite beer. We hadn't enjoyed it for more than two years. And when we could reunite, uh, that was absolutely glorious. And especially in a college setting, I mean, Heineken compared to the other options, that might as well be top shelf. So well played on your part. Yeah, very well played on your part there. And knowing today that, you know, some of those days are behind you in a sense also weaving in a pillar of this concept that I refer to as the Malinsky minute, a nod to the late, great sports betting legend, David Malinsky, who I was so fortunate to get to know and do some work Mm -hmm. with near the end of his life with us. Um, What would you consider some of the biggest lifestyle factors for sustained success on either side of the counter? I asked this thinking that Dave was not just so sharp at betting, but between getting out to Mount Charleston or knowing every mom and pop restaurant or seemingly everything about music, there are some things that when we break away from the screen, and you know, if you will, if this isn't getting too hippie, almost like recharging our soul, it can make us sharper when we get back down to business. Are there any areas where you found that to be true in your career to this point?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say I kind of ran myself into the ground from 2004 to 2010. i was I was working at the at the Westgate, and I was working like 6 am to like three pm and then I would go home, sleep for an hour, and then I would kind of start be like either handicapping whatever sport was going on whether it was college basketball like doing overnights and stuff for my own betting um and then I would go out and bet because back then there wasn't a lot of mobile apps so I'd be out betting till like midnight or 1am I'd I'd come home I'd work more on my numbers I was sleeping like three hours a night for like five years and I just like I I quit my job in 2010 and I would my my intent was to focus on sports betting for uh, full time but I just found myself that I was really run down and It was at that point that i was like all right i have to do something because like i don't feel good um i didn't really start sleeping but i started working out and i just didn't really know what to do i was probably like 30 pounds heavier so i just started running not knowing really what else to do and not having a lot of experience working out i lost about 30 pounds and then i i I actually I, i got into i got into probably weight training about a year after that and and really started feeling good and that's the weight training made me change my lifestyle so i mean up to that point i was drinking you know, a two liter bottle of Coke a day, eating pizza, like just not putting anything good into my body. And I couldn't keep up all the weight training and all that stuff while still not fueling my body with all this garbage. So I, I, I like had to switch. It just made me. And so I think it's just been a gradual process since then. Um, you know, I I started going to like a naturopath in 2016 and kind of overhauled my diet again and even got it more specific onto what I was doing. But overall, yeah, I just started realizing that, to kind of live this life I was living. And, you know, I, when I was betting, I really was doing these sprints where I was Friday morning, I would have to wake up at like 5am or 6am for NASCAR practice to watch that. And I didn't, I didn't feel like I ever stopped until around Tuesday because I would watch NASCAR practice Friday. We had a truck race an Xfinity race, um, a cup race over the weekend. If it's during football season, I'm betting college football, which normally I do on Monday and Tuesday. But I was still kind of keeping tap and tra- um track my positions and, and kind of changing things if there were injuries, and then I had to do all my accounting, which I was doing myself, like on Sunday night, plus reading everything about you know all the games from college football on Saturday. Um, I, it just was like a blur from Thursday to Monday, and so I had to do something to get myself in shape to kind of run that gauntlet of no sleep and limited movement, you know, for those days, and and that just turned out to be you know, drinking less, focusing more on my diet, exercising more, prioritizing exercise, which is something that I I do to this day. I had to prioritize it. So like, you know, I'll, I'll try to go to the gym at least like four or five days a week and try to go for at least two, two and a half hours every time. And I had to make it a priority. I had to say, okay, like, you know, if I don't do this, then I'm not going to be able to work this job. So you can either have me this version of myself that, you know, can't go to that meeting because I'm at the gym or you don't have me at all. And I just had to prioritize it. But Overall, I still feel like I'm trying to like find you know the hacks and the long- term tricks to feeling better. and the, the thing I like about it is your body's always changing. You know, you as a person are always changing. Your, your brain's always learning. Like so who you are today is not who you're gonna be two, three years from now. And that applies to everything in terms of like diet, your body exercise, and it's not for good or for bad. It's just like that's where you are. So you have to constantly be kind of reflecting internally and looking at yourself and saying, you know, where am I at today and being realistic and, and what's best for me today and what's going to help me perform optimally. And so I try to do that.
1: I love it. I think of this saying, uh, as you were going back to, you know, years ago, trying to balance everything and going on some big time sprints with betting, um, the saying that you can't outwork a bad diet. So trying to be mindful of everything. I mean, yes, this podcast hops is in the name. I, <laughs> I love to enjoy a good beer or, or really any kind of beer from time to time. Uh, but you know, all good things in moderation, and I think that there there are people like uh, you know Greg Peterson who who does uh, his show for Veasan. Um, he does twelve miles a day running, wow. and that's not <laughs> relatable for most people. So we don't need to go to that extreme for everybody and say, "Hey, this is what one person's doing; therefore, this right. is what you should expect of yourself." I think for most people, it's not to you know cut out the pizza or beer or the time to lounge altogether, but for most people, if if you're kind of feeling stuck, I know the pandemic has put a lot of people in in a tough spot to figure out what to do from a daily habit standpoint. Yeah. I I think if people could maybe just drink a little bit more water, get a little bit more sleep, walk outside for 10 minutes a day, you know, those kind of starting points can put somebody on a great path. So nobody has to be, you know, a a non-drinker and have a perfect diet and run marathons, but just a little bit of a nudge to put yourself in a better state as far as your health goes physically can also work wonders. I think mentally when it comes time, you know, for somebody like me to bet or for somebody like you to, to set odds or book bets.
0: Yeah. And like you said, everybody's, everybody's different. In no way would I ever try to like say, this is what you have to do or, you know, look down on somebody who's out there drinking every night. It's like, that might work for you. Like, I don't, like, I'm sure when I was, and it certainly when I was 27, I could, you know drink drink a six pack and wake up at five in the morning and do that but now it's like I just I want to I want to feel the best every morning when I wake up and be ready and so I do what works for me but yeah everyone's different and to try to tailor like one lifestyle or one approach to like everyone would be insane and so yeah that's why I would never try to like say that I think my way is the way and you know some people might laugh at me and be like oh that's seems a little extreme and you know maybe it is and but it works for me so yeah well, cool.
1: Matt, from the betting to the lifestyle components, I appreciate the nuance in this conversation and everything that you've shared. I want to make sure to plug your work so people know where they can follow you if they're not doing so already on Twitter at MMPact. Also, everything that you and the great team at Circa are doing day to day at the sports book over there at Circa in downtown Las Vegas. Beyond that, is there anything I'm missing or anything else you'd like to add?
0: No, I think you I think you hit all of it. And and again, yeah, I just want I want to, you know, everyone to um, really know that that we're trying to do our best. And by no means are we perfect. And like you mentioned, with the menu size, we're, you know, we're, we're still a rather small menu compared to other books. But the guys who are who are working at Circus Sports, um, they put their heart and soul into this job and they 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 work as many hours as they can in order to facilitate People getting down and people betting, and and they love their jobs, and they're they're excited to, you know, that that people are appreciating what they're doing, and so they they I think the the recognition that that you gave us in your intro, which is very very kind, and um, it's appreciated. So I, I appreciate you having me on here, and and for, you know, supporting what we're doing and, and speaking kindly about us. Thank you.
1: Yeah, well, to echo your words and bring things full circle, off the top, you mentioned customer service, even something you noticed as being a really big key before you were doing what you're doing now. I think half of my Twitter feed is Jeffrey Benson responding to everybody in the best possible way. Any of the team at Circa just really knocking it out of the park on that front. So I appreciate you taking the time to come on. And I'll wrap this up by letting listeners know if you've enjoyed this conversation First off, thank you for listening, and the number one way that you can support Props and Hops would be to take a quick moment to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And Matt, once again, thank you for the time and insight and for being a voice of reason in a space full of so much noise. I'm already looking forward to meeting again in person at dash 3 if not sooner, on our future trip to Circa.
0: Thanks for having me, Matt.